Dr. King was the kind of person who saw you not for what you were or even what you are now, but what you could be in the future. That's Harker Kleinfelder, the former assistant director of media of Martin Luther King. And my name is Jonathan. And I've waited for so long to say this, but welcome to The Great Speakers. The Great Speakers, featuring the most respected international talents in the world of leaders and speakers. Radio, TV, film, and online. In-depth interviews, industry insights, tips worth sharing. This is The Great Speakers Podcast with Jonathan Bai. It is December 2018, just a couple of weeks before the 19th birthday of the King of Hope. I sat down with the now 80-year-old former press officer of Martin Luther King. His name is Harkert, and the first question that popped up in my mind was, what was his life like before the civil rights movement? Um, I am a Yankee. That means I grew up north of the Mason-Dixon line, where there was never slavery or segregation. Um, my father was an engineer for the telephone company. My mother had been a principal in the school. I grew up in suburbia. Um, <clears throat> I could see Manhattan on the, the skyline. Um, my parents were very uh, perfectly aggressive. And <clears throat> so uh, I grew up um, in an atmosphere where um, the ideals from the civil rights movement were something which I grew up with. But I, before I'd gotten involved with the civil rights movement, uh, for me began in Selma. I was not an active activist. When um, it was only a year and a half after I'd met Dr. King the first time, uh, Dr. King came to Bridgeport, Connecticut, a town about the same size as Elmira. So I went with uh, Homer, uh, a roommate in my um, dormitory. And then um, we couldn't get into the audience. So many people were there. So we had to go and stand backstage. And Dr. King came in and um, uh, he walked right by the mayor and the other important people and went over and said, Homer, how are you doing in your study in Greek? That made a deep impression. Here's this world-famous person, yeah. and he's more concerned about a parishioner in his church than he is the mayor of the city's biggest, Almira. And then I heard a warmed-up version of I Have a Dream, uh, which I had missed. Uh, I was planning to go, but my father just died, and I'd forgotten that was the day. 
And people did come back and say, he made a fantastic speech. But um, so then this made a very deep impression on me, particularly the singing, the spirit. That was much more religious than the theological school. And then there, <clears throat> um, there had been students, in fact, the dean uh, wanted at one point to support the demonstrations during the vacation in the cell. And um, then <clears throat> Dr. King got his Nobel Peace Prize, and uh, then Dr. King began the campaign to get the rights in practice for the Afro-Americans in the South. And the high point of that was the campaign in Selma. We're going to stand up right here in Alabama amid police dogs if they have them. We're going to stand up amid tear gas. We're going to stand up amid anything that they can muster up, letting the world know that we are determined to be free. So you drove 900 miles to go to the Selma march with your recorder. Please take me back to that moment. So I had been... In Selma, there was the first attempt to march from Selma to Montgomery, the capital, a distance of um, 80 miles. And I was brutally bitten and beaten down. 70 people were injured. Of course, they took them to the black hospital. The white hospital would not take them. And uh, that became known as Bloody Sunday. If you were married to a black person, you were white, and you went uh, from Boston in Boston or Plymouth where the pilgrims landed, uh, where there was this ideal of everybody is alike. And then you went down and you sat next to your wife in the bus and then you went to Philadelphia. It says in our Declaration of Independence that everybody is created equal by the Creator and has the rights that are inalienable to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then you go down to Washington, and then you cross over the bridge into Virginia, where the, the Arlington Cemetery is, where our war heroes are buried. At that point, your wife would have to go and sit in the back of the bus. And then when you went to the restaurant, you could go into the restaurant, but she would have to go to the snack bar, because black people were not let into the white restaurant. And then you stop and you go to the, to the uh, water fountain and there's a cooled water fountain for the white folks and for the, for the black folks there was only a, a tap with, with uh, lukewarm water. And then you go to the restroom and there were always three restrooms in the South, men, women and colored. And then uh, you finally get into Atlanta, where Dr. King was born and grew up. And then you would, uh, you could be, go to the White Motel, but your wife could not come. So um, this was uh, the situation um, in, in those days. Um, as far as voting in the, then, from off the end of the Civil War, every American had the right to vote. But from off 
around 1900 in that period, they began to pass laws which said you have to prove you can read and write to be able to vote. And if you were a professor of English in the state university and could write and you were black and could, uh, if you were white, I was going to say, if just an ordinary white worker, if you could put a cross by your name, that was good enough. But if you were a professor of English and were black and could write the whole constitution without a mistake, that was not good enough. So this, this way, you could keep all the black people from being able to vote. And that meant that there were, there were no real black politicians in the Deep South when I went down there in 65, uh, a year after the voting rights bill had been passed, uh, which ended all the segregation. So if you were able to, if you were on, wanted to participate in our system to be able to vote, then you had to prove you could read and write. And <clears throat> Thereby, they were able to keep people off the books. So this was the situation in those days. So what we did in the movement, we would go and uh, down to the courthouse and try to register. Now, then they would only have the courthouse open um, hours when most people would normally be uh, be working. So that was another barrier. And then when you finally uh, got there, if you did succeed in, in registering to vote, then the next day, you your house was um, the, <clears throat> was uh, no longer available to you. Um, that was if you were lucky, if you lost, your, you would lose your job. And if you weren't so lucky, you and maybe the rest of your family would be hanging from a tree somewhere. Uh, so uh, it was, you risked your life, or at least a whole lot, if you did succeed in getting registered. Now, what would happen is you would have a demonstration, and then you would go down there, and then the sheriff would say, uh, you know, this is illegal, and you have to disperse, and if you don't, then, uh, then you would get arrested or beaten up, um, or both. So this was the situation in those days. Next on the, the Great Speakers. Came up with the phrase, I have a dream. He picked that up somewhere in some small school in the, in the backwoods of Georgia. The Great Speakers. I went down to the Berlin Wall, they called it, the barricades. And on the one side were all these policemen and they're heavily armed, looking very afraid. And on the on the side where I was now standing, we had young people, old people, singing, testifying, and uh, it was a very happy spirit. This was the atmosphere. And then I went to Doctor when Doctor King came. I went to him, and I had this recorder I brought back from England with me when I had studied there. And I went to Doctor King. And I made my first interview with him. And then Dr. King asked uh, people to come and help, and particularly the clergy. Um, then there was a second march, um, and he went to the bridge, and uh, the police opened up, and he thought, you know, maybe this is a trap or something. 
but there was a federal injunction. And if he went through, then he would break the injunction. So he turned back. Um, and, and then um, at that point, there was a white minister, uh, Reverend James Reed from Boston had come down to help. He was in a black cafe. He came out and some racists clubbed him in the head and he lay in coma for uh, a couple of days. And the article about what happened to him for some reason caught my eye. And I followed the, what happened and he died. And they had a memorial service for him downtown in the university. And I went and they had a, a connection over the telephone to Selma. And there was a minister in Selma and he said, there's been a crucifixion and we need people for social resurrection. And I felt it's my turn to go. And uh, I think I prayed all night. And then I took two other people and drove 1,500 kilometers to Selma. Wow. And then that was my beginning with the, the movement, and um, I had brought with me a uh, Phillips tape recorder, a portable that I bought when I was studying in England, and began to make uh, interviews. And the first interview, by the way, that I made with Dr. King, I have that still. So, Dr. King, in his last speech, says, you know, there's all these death threats out. There always were, but they were much more intense. He said, like everybody, I'd like to live a long life, but that's not important. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anybody. I just want to do God's will. Um, I might not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And when you live in the spirit, um, then you, you're not afraid. You know, we lived with the idea that no matter what happened, how, how great the evil, that the love of God was still stronger 
that things that were horrible could be turned into some good. Dr. King said, unmerited suffering is redemptive. So we will live with the spirit. Okay, if you do get killed, it's better to die for some good than just just to die for nothing. So this was this, the spirit that, that went on and goes on. So how did Dr. King came up with the phrase, I have a dream? Came up with the phrase, I have a dream. He picked that up somewhere in some small church, uh, small school in the, uh, in the backwoods of Georgia, somewhere in the South. A little high school girl had that as a scene from her essay. So he picked that, that theme up and like a classical composer uh, that uses a folk uh, song and, and the symphony and then work that out in the typical style from black preaching of repeated praise um, the solo phrase is repeated the same way you see it in soul music the same phrase is repeated all, over and over so that was where the theme came from And then. Then, okay. With the speech. The, mar the march. Yeah. The march on Washington. The great I have a dream speech. Dr. King had spent a lot of time with colleagues from the march, very carefully working out on paper his speech. And then, um, and that is usually, you don't hear that part. Um, and the theme was that the government had made a, a bad check they, um, and they made all these promises, but there was, they never backed them up. And then Ray Elliott said, now tell them about the dream. And Dr. King used uh, much of his material uh, and other speeches or others, even other sermons. So when She did that in extemporarily. Dr. King made his famous part that everybody knows about um, from uh, I Have a Dream That One Day Sons of Slave Owners and Daughters from Slave uh, Holders will join together as brothers and sisters and sit down on the table of brotherhood. That uh, was all extemporaneous. But when she... That, that's what I've been told, that when she shouted, Martin, tell them about the dream. He shuffled his written speech aside, and from that point on, everything was improvised? So far as I know, yeah. When he uh, preached in the church, uh, he had already written out what he wanted to say. And... Uh, In the pulpit, underneath was a big old-fashioned amplifier with a lot of tubes in it, and uh, it was about so big. And Dr. King would put his foot on the amplifier and lean back, 
and then he would be uh, would speak extemporaneously. So, so how how did he came up with the the rhythm and the vibes? Okay, the <clears throat> he had a natural ability to, on the spur of the moment, to phrase things in such a way that they were very picturesque and, and rhyme. Um, in the in the black church, they had a much better understanding of symbolic language and metaphors. Um, and so people who are oppressed very often write things in metaphoric language because they can communicate to their public and the oppressors don't realize what's going on. So large parts of the Bible are written in periods of persecution. So you don't speak directly. You don't call the, the Pharaoh by his personal name. Uh, so when they're talking about the Pharaoh and Moses going down to Egypt to tell them, let my people go, they're realizing they're talking about the master of the plantation. Dr. King had to have an audience. Um, you, you, you mean like if he would not be in the presence of an audience, it would sound much differently? It would sound much differently. Serious? Yeah, seriously. He uh, made a series of 15-minute um, radio programs in a studio, and they dubbed in an echo so it would sound like it was in a church. And if you could stay awake for more than um, five or ten minutes from this program, you would probably had five cups of coffee just before. <laughs> it was terrible, and he knew it, and he did not want that to happen. But my colleague, Bill Stein, and I, at one point, added his 45-minute long sermon over the Good Samaritan, the Bomb-Hearted Good Samaritan, into a 15-minute radio program. Um, in those days, you had to cut it with a razor blade and plaque it with tape. And uh, the day, well, exactly one year the, to the day before Dr. King had been assassinated, uh, he was in this hotel room uh, in New York preparing to speak before the United Nations with almost as many people outside us in Washington <laughs> on the march. And in the evening in the biggest church, Riverside Church, against the war. And the room was filled with important people like Sidney Poitier and Mahalia Jackson and other famous people. And Bill and I went to him and said, Dr. King, we have this edited tape. It's 15 minutes long. Can you spare that time? And he said, yes. So I went in the other room and he listened to it. He said, okay, you have our permission to make the programs. So he called me up and uh, and he told me how he made his sermons. What? Yeah. You, you mean like how everything is structured? Yeah. How his speeches were structured. Were structured. Are you willing to, to share? No, of course I'm yeah? yeah, of course. Um, the first thing he said The first thing he said was, an essay is to inform. 
A sermon is to persuade. I think I've two fails from the, the sermons that were, were more interesting, but they, they, didn't move, they didn't move the word. It's move. We call it a movement. And you need to move people into action. He said, secondly, that you may need to make an appeal to the intellect. You need to make an appeal to the emotions. And you need to make an appeal to the will. So you need to have all three parts. And because we're more than just an intellect. And emotions are not only evil, they are also positive. Love is a positive emotion. And thirdly, you need to appeal to get people to move. So, and then as a structure, as such, they use an old scheme, I'm told, that goes back to Roman times, of first an introduction. I would like you to go with me today on the Jericho Road. And then he would say, uh, he would have a three-point sermon, always usually three points. And for each of the three points, he would have a highbrow uh, illustration. He would have a middle brow, and he had one, a low brow one that Anne Chang could understand, very often humorous out of his personal life. So in each of the three parts, he had these three levels of uh, illustrations. And then he would have a, a summary, and then he would have interchangeable endings, sometimes the same endings you would hear in his speeches. So like, now is the time... Uh, so uh, I have a dream. These sort of things come in the last part. And then it was, well, and the church was all tight. And a, an appeal to, to follow Jesus and of, to join the church. The yeah, there was yeah. all tight an appeal to do. We're going to go back from the valley to go to jail together, to, to march together. And, and, and I have a dream. So it's, so this, these are the elements that sit in his sermon. So to edit it for the program, we either used one of the three parts or we took two of the three illustrations out and then had you the same time to get it into 29 minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> what was it like to be in Dr. King's presence? What kind of person was he? Dr. King was the kind of person who saw you not for what you were or even what you are now, but what you could be in the future and try to inspire you to try to reach that. He treated everybody the same. He treated the garbage collector and the mayor the same way after church when anybody could go and talk with him. He lived in the ghetto because he said he wanted to be reminded for who he worked as he went to work every day. Um, <clears throat> he had no burglar alarm. If he went to the door, the kids would come and welcome you in. The living room was very bare. And there was a statue of Gandhi on the table. His Nobel Peace Prize was on the window shelf. The rest were of his awards were in the closet in the bedroom and the first time I had been in his house 
Mrs. King had called the office and asked me to come and fix the family tape recorders, this archaic thing. And it got late, and she said to me, um, won't you stay for dinner? And I said, I don't want to put you anywhere. No, Martin's always having uninvited, unexpected guests come for dinner, so I always have extra food in the house. It's no problem. Now, we sat down in the kitchen, and Dr. King came in late, as usual. And when he came in, I said to him, Dr. King, I really don't feel worthy enough to sit at the same table with you. And he said, now, Harcourt, you mark it necessary for me to make a long sermon about how everybody is equal. <laughs> now, that was, that was Dr. King, that uh, in reality. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Great Speakers. Tell me which part you liked the most by leaving a comment with the time code. Hold up. What, what, what's a time code? Does anyone know what a time code is? It is very simple. Let's say you like the part on 8 minutes and 5 seconds. Then that's the time code. That's what you leave in the comments. You can contact me at thegreatspeakers.com and don't forget to subscribe. My name is Jonathan Bai and thanks for listening. See you next time.